0: Hola, hola, mi gente! Thank you, thank you so much for coming back and listening to another episode of the Wine and Cheese Made podcast. I am very excited. I, as I say, you probably heard on other episodes, I say that with everybody, but it's because it's true. But my guest today, I just feel like it's just going to bring so much wealth and knowledge. Do you pronounce it Evelyn or Evelyn? Evelyn. Okay. Al Sultani. Am I saying that correctly? Muy oui bien. Yes. <laughs> I really try. I think it's let me just say, I believe it's very important. I've said it in previous episodes that you know it's up to us to correct people if they're not saying their our names correctly. That I think is across the board, whether you're Latina, Latino, whether you're French, whether you're, you know, Muslim, all of those things. You guys on camera, my I've been having problems with my green screen, and right now, like my I'm showing my hands, and they have like green outlines. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start this. All right. <laughs> um, let me go ahead and read her bio because you're going to understand why I'm so excited, and I hope you all are excited as well. Evelyn Al Sutani is a leading expert on the history of representation of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. media. She is the author of Broken: The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion and Arabs and Muslims in the Media, Race and Representation After 9-11. She is an associate professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California's. Is it Dorn Dornsife?
1: You got it. It took okay. me a long time to <laughs> learn how to say that.
0: <laughs> she has served as an educator and consultant for Hollywood Studios and co-authored Criteria. Okay. Obedidi al-Sultani test. Did did I say that correctly? Obey the Al-Sultani test. Obey the okay Al-Sultani test to help Hollywood improve representations of Muslims. Professor Al-Sultani has published op-eds in the Hollywood Reporter, the Washington Post, and Newsweek, and has a podcast, Muslims as seen on TV. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so, like I said, I'm so excited to have you. And then I do actually at the end have an Ask because I've been waiting to talk to you and to ask you this question, and this makes me so excited. How are you today? Good, <laughs> thanks for having
1: me, Jessica. I'm very excited to be here, and I've been listening to your podcast, and I love what you're doing.
0: Oh, thank you, that means a lot to me. I think the whole point is really talking to people across communities of color. Obviously, a large percentage of my audience comes from the Latine community, however even though we all have our own experiences, I think it's so important for us to hear experiences from other communities as well, because so often we get misinformation from what we see on TV and we integrate that into our everyday lives without ever maybe meeting somebody that represents what we're seeing on TV or anything like that. But before we get into all that, before we get into the cheese, may we always start with the wine. So please tell, I know you're not drinking wine, but please share what you are drinking today. So,
1: you know, Muslims who are religious don't drink. I am not that religious as a Muslim, <laughs> but my husband was very religious for a while. And so he didn't drink for like, I don't know, a decade. And I didn't drink in solidarity with him. And now he's not religious anymore, but I still drink very rarely. And it's you know connected. It's a Muslim thing, but here's what I brought today. A friend of mine sent me in the mail kin euphorics, which is a non-alcoholic beverage, and it tastes like wine. Ooh. This particular one, it's called kin bloom, and it, it tastes like wine. I was fooled oh. when I when I tried it. Really? So I thought that would be appropriate for our. How do you spell today. the name? Yeah, yeah, kin k i n euphorics. I'm not really familiar Ooh, okay. with them. My friend sent me a bunch of these like two weeks ago and I've been sampling different flavors, and this is the only one that I like so far. And it tastes
0: nice. Like it. Okay. Well, I'm gonna put it in the show notes. So if people are for Lent or for if they just want to take a break, dry January, whatever, or if they, you know, or they just want to mix something in with all of their wine drinking, like me, um, they have the opportunity to do so. So I think that's that's great. I always love hearing different things. I am going bold today. I got? Um, I am having a 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon from Erencia del Valle. They're friends of the podcast. They've been so supportive. And it's been a while since I've had their wine because I've been getting so many and I want to try everything. But, you know, it's rainy and cold here. And I'm like, you know what? I need something to warm me up. So I'm going to go big, bold cab. So, salud. Salud. How do you say cheers in Muslim or in Arab? Don't oh, we're going to have to find that out. Yes,
1: I speak Spanish. I don't speak Arabic, but I know some words. I don't know that one.
0: Yes, I know. I know. You know, so one of the things that I found so fascinating when I got your guest submission is that you are Iraqi Cuban. That's so you have impressive. a Cuban Catholic mom, a Colombian mm-hmm. Catholic stepmom, and an Iraqi Muslim dad. Yes. So how did that happen? How does that grow? Yeah. Like, (laughs) how did they meet? How was that growing up? Like, what were those dynamics?
1: Yeah. So my dad was uh, born and raised in Iraq, uh, a small town. He came to the U.S. He's Muslim. Shia came to the U.S. in the 1960s. One of these stories of not knowing the language and, you know, making his way and, had a business later, but he said he, and he was a Latin nightclub in New York city. And he saw my mom from across the way. And he thought she looks Iraqi. He's going to go talk to her. I mean, he really sounds like a pickup line, but he wants to talk to her. (laughs) And yes, the rest is history. My mom passed away when I was six and she is the Cuban Catholic. She came in the night in 1960, right after Castro took power, her whole family came. She's one of eight siblings. So she passed away when I was 6 and then my dad remarried. He was like, children need a mother. Here's your new mom. And my stepmom who came to the US in the 1970s from Colombia and she's Catholic, but she became Muslim. Through the decades, she was both basically being part of our family. Yeah, she's still around. My father passed away over 10 years ago and yeah, my stepmom has been there through and through. And in the family, there was never a conflict, really, in the family, in the, in the nuclear family. We were Muslim. Yes, I was baptized as a baby because my mom was Cuban Catholic. I don't, you know, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> yeah. But we were raised Muslim. My stepmom learned all the prayers, learned she would fast with us during Ramadan. She just did all the things. And then my dad would take me to, I grew up in New York, so he'd take me to, like, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he would say... You know, you can pray in any house of worship. It doesn't matter if it's Christian or Jewish. You know, there aren't many mosques. There weren't many at that time. So he was like, i just go to any house of worship. It doesn't matter. So he had a, you know, a broad view of religion and where to pray and things like that. So within the nuclear family, there was never really an issue about religion. But outside, I mean, I was with my Cuban family in New York last week visiting And there were constant Islamophobic comments. It's just, you know, there's a thing. Actually, I teach a class on mixed race identity. And on the first day, I tell people that I come from a mixed background and that there's this idea that if you're in a mixed environment, that it's the end of racism and that I can testify from my own experience that that is just not true.
0: Yeah, I fully believe that, yeah, because you'll have people from one side of the family versus the other side of the family sometimes. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. You know, oftentimes it does. And especially in those instances, I don't know in regards to the Cubano experience. I know from my experience, the Mexican-American experience in regards to like my family constantly, there's everything is a party, right? A one-year-old's party is like huge. It's not really for the kids. It's really for the family, and there's constantly people are drinking beer, rent tequila, like there's constantly things around that could potentially make somebody from a Muslim background if they're not open-minded, and even if they don't drink, could possibly make them feel uncomfortable. And my family's ruthless, where they would probably make a comment. I'm not even, I'm not Ooh. saying my parents, but my extended family, my my tíos, Not my theas, my feels really more than anybody else. Like they are ruthless. So are my cousins. So it has. It's a very special person to have to come meet my family.
1: (laughs) Understood. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's all around me. So you just you just roll with it. You know, you make. You know, I love my uncle. He'll say things. It's okay. I know he loves me. It's not personal. Uh, You know. And this last time, you know, he's eighty four years old. Am I going to get into it with him? No, I'm not going to. But over Growing the- up, did you
0: feel the pressure to defend the Muslim side of your family to the Cuban side of your family? When I was
1: growing up, it was more that I'd come over and it'd be like croquetas with pork in it, you know. And it was just at a certain point, it's like, how many times do I need to explain this? It just it was <laughs> so basically they wouldn't see me. They would see me through like their Cuban lens and they would ignore that other part of me. So that's what often happens. Which on the one hand, that's beautiful. I'm part of the family. They don't treat me like I'm an outsider. I'm part of the family. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, you know, decades and decades, and I come over and they're giving me pork.
0: So outside of that, outside of the family dynamic, when you were growing up outside of your house, how did people how did you see yourself and how did people see you and relate to you in regards to who you, you know, who you were or who you are? Yeah, you know, it's it's
1: Interesting when I think back on growing up in New York because it's such a diverse city, and people ask you all the time where you're from. And you know, we know that it could be a very loaded question, but oftentimes in New York it's an innocent question because everyone's from somewhere. Mm-hmm. But that question, I mean, not a day went by that we weren't asked that question. And then it was it was always a thing. What how are how are my parents going to respond? So a story I often share is that when I was little, my Father would often say he was from Turkey instead of saying Iraq cuz Turkey's secular and doesn't have all the loaded connotations that Iraq has and my stepmom would say she was from Spain instead of saying she was from Colombia and me at like 8 years old, 9 years old, I was like why are my parents lying about where they're from? I didn't understand it. And then as I got older, I started noticing that okay, if my father says Iraq, he's going to get questions about terrorism. If my stepmom says Colombia, here we go, Pablo Escobar time. And then the questions would follow, how do you make your money? Like, are you involved in dealing cocaine? Are you dealing arms and terrorism? Like all this other stuff would come up. So I came to a point where I understood that they don't want to have these conversations every day. So I'm from Turkey and Spain.
0: Yeah.
1: Because people don't have the same kinds of associations with those places. So it was constant and every day.
0: Yeah. As much as I understand it, it breaks my heart hearing that because, and a lot of it, which we will get into, is based on what people see in the media. Yes. I mean, completely and totally. I've said this several times before, and I think I'd started with the podcast in regards to people are afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of what they don't know. And as diverse as maybe middle, middle America is becoming, that's really where even as recent as a couple of years ago, why are people in middle America so concerned, like so concerned people are, you know, in regards to what's happening in the border, not so concerned, but they're so afraid that somebody's going to come across the border and do something. And I'm like, you are several States away, not to say that nothing could happen or nothing Mm -hmm. would happen, but it was just like this very big thing in their head. And after any type of large event happens, right? In regards to a Pan Am flight or 9-11 or yes. anything, everything is turned very specific to a specific group. I know that you said that it was, you know, you had both sides of your family, but when you finally like got to high school and got to college, did your views on who you are and how you represent yourself and the communities you represent Did those change and those are those things that are continuing to evolve or are you firmly set in who you are?
1: I do think that my identity has changed over time. I think when I was young, I felt embarrassed. There were just so many messages. So I was like downplaying, you know, Muslim, Arab, Latina. I was downplaying all of it, even though I went to the United Nations International School, which was an amazing environment where everyone was from somewhere, but just all the media messages, you know, white is what's good. Blonde is what's beautiful. So it, it did impact me as a child, and which is not to say that I was completely disavowing these identities, but they, I didn't embrace them the way that I do today. In college, I was a first-generation college student. I was very lost and confused. I, I was having a hard time finding my way until I took a women's studies class And I started learning about power and racism and sexism, and it helped me understand my experiences in my world. And I was able to take Latino studies courses and African-American studies, Native American studies, Asian-American studies. And I had a longing that could not be fulfilled at that time, which really shaped my path, which was that I wanted to learn about my experiences growing up Arab and Muslim. And if you want to learn about Arabs, you go to Middle East studies. I don't want to learn about Middle East studies. I want to learn about me here in the U.S. in related to racial politics. You want to learn about Islam, you go to religious studies. I don't want to learn about, I mean, I, I took those courses, but that's not what my interest was. I wasn't looking, I didn't want to read the Quran and learn about the origin of the, yes, I took that class. I wanted to learn about what it means to be Muslim in the U.S. and why it feels so fraught. And this is before 9-11. It felt fraught. didn't feel accepted. So that started my curiosity. And I applied to graduate school in 1999. And I proposed studying, putting Arab Americans in conversation with racial politics in the U.S. within ethnic studies, U.S. ethnic studies. And I was accepted to Stanford. It was a big deal for me at the time that I got into that school as a first-generation college student.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And my parents... I didn't go to, I, I visited the campus and it is a beautiful campus. In fact, I went with my two nephews a couple of years ago. We were taking a road trip back down from Portland, back down to San Diego. You know, my nephew was saying some of his friends got accepted and we were driving past. I'm like, you want to stop? He's like, yeah. So it was during the pandemic. So nobody was on campus or anything. They let us take pictures. The security guard actually took pictures for us. Stanford's a wonderful school and it's a beautiful campus. So kudos to you on that. Thank you. So that's Very in 99. Beautiful.
1: 99. I got there and my advisor, who is a Latina, said, you know, you're not gonna get a job doing this project. If you want to get a job, you're gonna have to get six years to get a PhD. You want to do ethnic studies, do Latino, you're Latina, do Latino studies. You'll get a job. Or You can do like women in Islam and get a job in religious studies or Middle East studies. There are no jobs in ethnic studies for what you're doing. She was right. But uh, 9-11 happened two years later. And then I was told that my project was cutting edge. And then from that moment, there's been a lot of change in terms of just recognition and acknowledgement of what that experience is. It didn't happen because of 9-11, but it was really exposed, came to the surface, was in your face after 9-11.
0: I wish I was with you right now. Literally, when you were saying that, I got goosebumps because then, obviously, what was that impact like? 9 11 happens. Uh, And if you were old enough, you know where you were. I was actually in an interview for a promotion at the job I was at in Dallas, and it got cut short. And they sent everybody home because nobody had an idea of what was happening, what was next. I worked for a high profile company. And so they're like, everybody go home. We don't know what's going on. How did that affect you? And then the subsequent media coverage that was happening around that. Please walk us through like your mindset during that time. So speaking
1: of how my identity has changed over time, I've never felt more Arab or Muslim in my life than I did after 9-11. And it's interesting how these political events can shape how you experience your identity. and. At that time, I was living in Oakland, California, because I was in grad school. And I remember seeing signs in my neighborhood that said hate free zone. And that's really nice that I lived in a neighborhood where people didn't want hate crimes against Arabs and Muslims. But I remember thinking, oh my God, that refers to me and people like me. So it was it was just this moment of hyper awareness. I was in Spain actually when it happened, visiting a friend of mine who was living in Madrid, and we were in a shoe store and we heard something on the radio. And then we went into a TV store and we watched the second plane hit in real time. And I'm from New York, so I grew up in New York City. So it was personal that this was happening there. And then when they started talking about how it was probably Arabs and Muslims who had committed the atrocity, the friend who I was with said, you know, I said, oh gosh, things are gonna get so bad now. This is gonna be really it's gonna be horrible. She's like, no, you know, we we've we've grown as a nation. This isn't gonna be like it was during Japanese internment, and you know, we're so we're in such a different place. And I think I was talking to her a month ago and she was reflecting on her saying that. She's like, I was so wrong, and I've learned so much since then. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I was watching TV, trying to figure out what happened. And I was, you know, scared like so many other people were. And I had cousins who were, you know, detained at the airport. I was fortunate in the sense that I didn't have any kind of direct experiences in terms of government surveillance. But, you know, lots of people have said crazy stuff to me about being Arab, about being Muslim. So, you know, on the interpersonal level, there's been a lot... On, but a lot of Arabs, Muslims, South Asians have had other kinds of experience in terms of with the national security state, with the government, with law enforcement. And what happened in my case is I got a job. Suddenly there were jobs in my area that didn't exist before. So my career took off and I would talk to. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And I would talk what to was friends. your family's reaction when you would talk to them about that or even other and other friends, maybe who did you have friends who reached out to you to ask you how you were? Because I would imagine like you would want to call your you know, you want to call your friends of that community and be like, hey, how are you doing? Are you OK? What was that experience? A lot of
1: those of us who grew up in New York were calling each other. A lot of us who weren't in New York at the time felt, I felt, I was grieving that I I felt like I needed to be there and I couldn't be there. But yes, friends did reach out to, you know, offer support, acknowledgement. Basically, it's just recognition and acknowledgement of the demonizing of the community, you know, demonizing Arabs and Muslims and South Asians later as a threat to national security and the interesting thing about this whole phenomenon and experience, and there was actually a study of the New York Times that showed that over 50 percent of the reporting gave the impression that Muslims are collectively responsible. So that's what's so interesting. Like these 19 men committed this terrorist attack and we can debate why they did it and, you know, whatever, in terms of whether it's because of U.S. policies, whether it's because, you know, they are insane, whatever, whatever. But 19 men did this, and then all Muslims in the world have to speak for it, have to account for it, have to have something to say about it as if we are collectively responsible. That experience, I assume that every Arab and Muslim in the United States who was around has had to explain it, has had to take personal responsibility for it.
0: That's so great. I mean, I remember hearing when hate crimes were happening, and I think my brain is always like, I don't understand. I don't get it because, you know, I feel like there's sometimes things happen and I try so hard to try and figure it out. And then it frustrates me even more because my brain just does not work that way. Yeah. Believe me, I'm very far from perfect and in, in all of these things. But when it comes to just hating a group of people, yeah. I honestly don't know how to comprehend that. It's very foreign to me. It's frustrating. Yeah. wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and chisme. Given the purchasing power of the Latina community, let me just tell you, mi gente, we are no longer a sleeping giant and your dollar, our dollar is powerful no matter where you go. That's why I'm excited to share that in conjunction with Cadena Collective, we have launched a pozole and wine pairing guide. You might think, what? that's interesting. Or what? That's weird. Or what? Heck no, no way. But you know what? We all like to enjoy different things. This truly only featured Latine-owned wine brands have worked really, really hard to provide wines that go with so many of our foods. So if you've even considered trying tamales and wine, or you've even considered trying pozole and wine, head over to the wine and cheese dot podcast.com, click on media, and there you will find the various resources to pair your wine. On the opposite side, did you lose any friendships or relationships or anything because of that and people putting blame on your community and so they tried to distance themselves?
1: It's a good question because, you know, that happened with so many people with Trump. I I don't really have a story like that. I just have so many stories of like getting on the airplane. You should see me now on the airplane. I like put on headphones and I try to look mean. I look nice and people talk to me, but people just say crazy things to you. Just like random people on the plane. I'd be so mad at you had I lost someone on 9-11. Just like random things. No. Yeah, (laughs) random things.
0: Girl, one time me and my friend Vicky were on a plane. Where were we coming back from? Maybe like from San Francisco back to San Diego or something like that. And the lady who was sitting next to us on the plane had a Trump book. And so we purposely started talking in Spanish. because we're so irritated Mm -hmm. no hablo (laughs) ingles we're just like we're we're like saying like oh my gosh can you believe this lady like like people are so proud to support this person blah 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 i Mm -hmm. don't even remember what we were saying but we're just because the way she was holding the book she was very proud of having that book and i'm like okay now you're sitting next to two latinas what are you gonna say to us like are you just reading that because and you want people to know? But if you want people to know, people will have a reaction. And this is right. our reaction. Just speaks Spanish. That's
1: right. Mm-hmm. Just so you know. Just so you
0: know. <laughs> who next to, girl. Right. I'm just
1: saying. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. I'm on so, the plane and I'm covering my books. I don't want anyone to see what I'm reading because I'm a professor. So I'm reading like Islamophobia, anti-Muslim racism. All, and I don't want people to see what I'm reading because I don't want to start a conversation. But often I'm, I'm on the plane. I got to work. Yeah. I, I work well on planes. Yeah. Oh, I got read God. this book. Got to get this work done. And I'm trying to hide it.
0: <laughs> so how did that progress in regards to from there, from 9-11 to what, you're progressively seeing now and what are the main things that you're constantly seeing in media? Because it's not just news, it's television, it's movies. So what does that common thread seem to be that hasn't changed? This is a two-part question. And then what is the thing that you feel like has been changing?
1: So as you said, it's news, it's Entertainment, it's policies, it's coming from so many, it's politician speeches, it's all kinds of things. And so when I'm thinking about, you know, let's say stereotypes of Muslims, but it applies to any other community that's been stereotyped, it's the repetition that's damaging. And, you know, I teach a class about media, it's like it's not this one movie, it's not this one policy, it's not this one speech, it's all of it repeating the same message over and over again that makes it so dangerous and so powerful. In terms of changes, that's what I've been tracking. So after 9-11, I was watching TV like crazy and trying to figure out what was happening, and I expected it to be worse than ever. There had been a terrorist stereotype that existed for decades. Basically, since the creation of Israel in 1948, we've had this terrorist, Arab terrorist stereotype, and I thought it's going to get much worse now. And it did. But what I was surprised to see was the uh, creation of this patriotic Muslim character, sometimes Arab, always Muslim, appearing on shows like 24 or Homeland terrorist-themed shows. And what was happening was that after 9-11, there were some civil rights groups like the Council on American Islamic Relations, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. They reached out to 24 and said, you know, if you keep showing Muslims as terrorists, it's just adding fuel to the fire, and this is really damaging. And so the response was throwing in this patriotic character. So if you have a terrorist Muslim, then you can count on it that there'll be a patriot who's willing to die to prove that they are loyal to the United States. And we start seeing this patriotic character a lot, all over the place. And I just started wondering what's happening with this character. On the one hand, it's nice, it's it's sympathetic, it's making me feel good, we're not all... Demonized, but it was always in the context of terrorism. So I was wondering, is this helping at all? You get to see a Muslim who's good or bad in the context of terrorism. Do you get to see a Muslim who's just like a normal person going to school? Do you get to see a Muslim who's, I don't know, a doctor, a singer, a podcaster? You know, no, you see Muslims as good or bad in relation to terrorism. So my first book is looking at that particular phenomenon. And basically concludes that it's not about an image being good or bad. We really need to look at the storylines and the logics that these, quote unquote, good images are embedded in. So that was the first book. And then I'll look forward to telling
0: you about the second book. Yeah. Have you ever seen the show Little Mosque? I love it. I I love it. (laughs) Little Mosque. Are you shocked that I know that? Wait, are you shocked that I know
1: that show? I am. I'm impressed. (laughs) It's a Canadian sitcom and it never made it to the U.S. I know. Where did I see it?
0: I I, I don't, it must've been on net. It was a streaming site that I saw it on. It must've been on Netflix or something like that. And I came across it and I was like, all right, let me try it. Let's see what this is about. And I loved it. Yes. It was so awesome. Do you want to explain what it's about?
1: Yeah, it's about a Muslim community in a small town in Canada and it's a sitcom. It's cute. It's funny. You know, a lot of it, a lot of the humor comes from poking fun at these terrorist stereotypes, but they're just normal people trying to run their mosque in their small town in Canada and uh, I remember at one point there was talk about one of the networks in the U.S. bringing it to the U.S., but it never happened. But it was really such a oh, special, have. special show. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it totally should have. And I had honestly forgot that I'd watched it until you were talking about this. And I was like, I remember that show, Little Boss, because <laughs> I loved it. It was so good. Yeah. So if you have not seen it, see if you can find it on one of your streaming services. It's totally worth it. It's the writing is really smart. They even talk about like why, um, who eventually become. well, I don't want to ruin it if anybody, well, you know, it has been out for a long time. The Who eventually becomes the wife, like when she has to have her hair covered and when she can't. And they, they actually kind of really explain those things, mm-hmm. but not in a beat down type of way, just in a matter of fact way that you're like, yeah. oh, okay, that makes sense. I didn't think of that or whatever. Even if you don't agree with it, but it just, you know, you're like, okay. And even the part where they talk about once a young girl gets to a certain age, it becomes her choice in regards to if she's going to be completely covered, like how much she's covering, if she's going to be completely covered, all of these different things. And I think those are nuances that are never discussed. Yes.
1: And to your earlier point that people are afraid of the unknown, it makes a difference if you have a Muslim friend on TV. It makes a difference if you have a gay friend on TV. It makes a difference Mm -hmm. if you have a Black friend on TV. Even if you don't know anyone personally, we watch TV shows. We get to know people. We get attached to these characters. So it really matters to like even have an imaginary friend on television.
0: Yeah. I mean, the representation is so important. And so let me just kind of share with you another instance that I had. Um, I used to work for a large real estate company doing internal communications. I was just hired for a contract period of six months and it was really to help people want to work at this company and do it like kind of rebrand their internal communications and how they reached out to people for employment. And when I initially went to their website, it was like all older white people you would maybe see here and there. So when I came in and I see all of these colors of people there, right, all of this vast difference of people, I was like, why are we not using employees to showcase the people that actually work here? Like, why are you using models? That's silly. That's whatever. And then one of the girls came down and I she was in a, on a different department and I saw her and she's wearing a job, And I was like, she needs to be in our ads mm-hmm. because I want true representation. And it was very important to me. So when I asked about her and then when we, they said, okay, that she could be on we actually went to lunch afterwards and it was one of the most touching things because she was crying like almost in tears thanking me for including her because she had never seen herself represented in any sort of corporate way. Yes. yes. And I'm gonna get teary because yeah. it just made me so sad and so happy at the same time. Yeah. Like yeah. so sad that she felt like she had never been seen and represented, but also so happy that I could be the one that could see her to make sure that she was represented. (laughs) Yeah,
1: It is profound to grow up and never see yourself represented, which is why little Evelyn was embarrassed. I didn't have Arab or, I mean, I had Ricky Ricardo, who I really did appreciate, by the way, as a child, like he meant (laughs) something to me. I remember Linda Carter on on Wonder Woman. I didn't know she was Latina until I was grown up, but I was obsessed with
0: her. When I found out Wonder Woman was Latina, I was so excited, girl! Yeah. I had Wonder Woman underoos. Yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I dressed up as Wonder Woman. I for would Halloween. pretend to be Wonder Woman, and then when I found out she was Latina, I was like, "Yes!" Yeah! I was so exciting. Yeah.
1: It matters. I think that's why I do what I do because those, those media images and never seeing myself represented, they impacted me. And then as I got older, it's like, I'm I'm embarrassed about this. Why? No.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about before we get into the second book is you were taught, you, I ask everybody what their why is, and I want to read what you say your why is and kind of talk about that first. You say you've spent two decades trying to bring Arabs and Muslims into conversations about racial politics in the US. It has been a challenge since the census classifies Arabs as white, and we usually don't talk about religion when we talk about race, which is something very similar to Latinos, right? Like you have ethnicity, which would be Hispanic slash Latino, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they ask, like, the country of origin, not all places, but sometimes. But then you're classified, like you're in this space of, are you white? Am I not white? Am I native? Like you don't know what to choose and it's very, very confusing. So can you talk about like how that could possibly affect, like how does that, how do you see your identity when you see that? And how do you think other people see their identity?
1: Yeah, it's been a a really big issue. I, I actually filled out a comment form today for the census because they're thinking about adding a Middle Eastern North African box, but it's Arab Americans have been lobbying for census recognition since the 1990s and they haven't received it. And uh, we are supposed to check white. That's the official understanding. And many people say, that's interesting. We are completely ignored and erased and we're supposed to check white. Meanwhile, we're being surveilled by the national security state. We don't have experiences of whiteness. Some do. So that's the other thing. Some do. Some Arabs look white, pass as white, might not have Arabic sounding names. They might be Christian and have Christian sounding names. And so like Latinos, there's such a big diversity within the community. So like with Latinos, some people are blonde and blue eyed and some people are black and everyone in the middle and the
0: same thing with Arabs. So that's super important because then there's this other article that I just read That I want to talk about as well. See, there's so much. This is why I'm so like, I was like, I couldn't wait to have you on. (laughs) Um, No, that's so important. I think, and I, and I do find it interesting that anytime you're unknown, they want you to put white. And that is so frustrating. I know I'm a light-skinned Latina. I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware of the privilege that comes with that. But nobody also, nobody ever looks at me and goes, you're white. Like, they're always like, oh, are you Puerto Rican? Like, like, it's very, like, people know I'm Latina. Right. Even though I'm a light-skinned Latina, like nobody's goes, well, what country, where from Europe are you from? No, it's like, oh, are you, I always get Puerto Rican before Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, are you Puerto Rican? Are you, you know, I get Puerto Rican, then Cuban. And then usually like Mexicans like this. Sometimes it's the second thing. Sometimes it's the third thing. Being in Southern California, obviously it's one of the first things, but I, it happens all the time when I was in New York in August. Everybody thought I was Puerto Rican. Yeah. I didn't have to say anything. And they're like, always, they all thought I was Puerto Rican. Yeah. So I just find it very, very interesting that we're always, I I do have a a different experience than somebody who is darker complexed to me, but I also don't have the quote unquote white experience Mm -hmm. because people immediately identify me as Latina, which is a very interesting thing I'm very proud of who I am and I'm very proud of where my family comes from and everything, but it is just really, um, it's just a very interesting mix. So I can't even imagine like somebody who's darker complected or somebody who's Muslim and comes from an Arab country, how disassociated with their identity they could possibly feel from that. Cause I know how I feel and I can imagine even more so.
1: Yeah. You know, since moving to L.A. Uh, four years ago, I was in Michigan before for 14 years. I've noticed that it is common for people to walk up to me and speak to me in Spanish in L.A. And I love it. But but because that's not my experience in Michigan, it's not even my experience in New York. And there are a lot of Latinos in New York. Uh, usually in New York, it's where you're from. You know, I'm used to that, like trying to figure out where I'm from here. Like it happens like I'm in CVS. Someone walks up to me speaking Spanish. I'm, you know eating dinner the other day on campus. The whole wait staff is Latino. They're talking to me in Spanish, you know? <laughs> so uh, it's it's nice. It's refreshing for me. And back to the question you had about my identity changing over time, because my work is about being Arab and Muslim. I'm known professionally as Arab and Muslim, and very few people know that I'm Latina. Then in my personal life, people know that I'm Latina. And so I'm actually even speaking to you on this podcast is awesome for me because I usually don't get the chance to do that you know I'm usually on the Arab podcast Muslim podcast I don't get to be on the Latina podcasts
0: well I'm glad you're here so much okay now let me talk about this article I don't know if you recently saw this article about this woman I think in New York who uh, yes. Okay. You I saw me. it. I already know what you're talking yes. about. I saw, I saw it. your face. Okay. <laughs> so she's wearing a hijab. She has a nose piercing. She has earrings, and then she's apparently has been presenting herself as Muslim. Well, I guess you can convert to to Muslim, and I guess her mom said she did. But she's she has presented herself as an Arab Latina woman. Yes. And her mom has come out and said she is white as the snow is. Yes, she is white as the driven snow. Yes. That's all I could say right now. Please <laughs> tell me what you said. Like, I was just like, are you? yeah yeah, like seriously and serio like these please share your thoughts. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in my race and mixed race class, we do
1: a segment on transracial identity and is that even possible because of Rachel Dolezal, who is a white woman, who lives as a black woman? There was another woman um, who's a professor, I think at George Washington University. Her name is Jessica Krug. I don't know if you ever saw her, but she was she's a white Jewish woman who was living as an Afro-Latina. Oh, I think I did see that. Mm-hmm. I think I did see that article. I have a colleague who I used to work with, um, Andy Smith, who is an amazing scholar and works on Native American identity. And apparently she's a white woman who's been pretending to be Native American. So I I was struck by how many people in my field, in my profession, do this because Rachel Dolezal teaches Black Studies. Jessica Krug is an academic. Andy Smith is an academic. This person is an activist. But I'm just blown away by the phenomenon and what drives people to take on other identities. And yes, I'd never seen the Arab Latinos. <laughs> Muslim identity,
0: I guess. Oh, maybe, I mean, my, identity identity. maybe <laughs> my identity is desirable after all. I just find it so, what do you think drives that? I mean, honestly, I just like, I get if you want to be an ally, freaking be an ally. Yes. But I feel like that just takes away from the work when you start representing yourself because you're never going to have that experience. You did not grow up with that experience. You're never going to have that experience that somebody who's truly an Afro Latina, who is truly a black woman, who is true. Like you're never going to have that same experience. So your, your perspective is already skewed. So what do you think drives that?
1: You know, I, I wish I had a good answer, but you know, in my mind, I'm wondering are we in a moment where people think white is dull and they want to "quote unquote" spice up their life by embodying an ethnic identity? We have Maybe been marginalized forever. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Goya <Sasson. laughs> Uh Do they feel like it gives them more credibility in the work that they're doing? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't. When you're exposed, and you know it's the end of your of your career.
0: Yeah, you know, we've seen cultural appropriation on multiple levels. You've yes. seen it within the Black community. Oftentimes, trends start within the Black community, and it's things that, and it's not a trend in those communities, right? In our yes. community, in their communities, it's not a trend. It's something that they are actually living, and then it branches out. We've seen that on TikTok in regards to people creating dance trends and it always starts with uh, oftentimes it starts with a a black creator but yet they're not given the recognition it ends up being a white creator that gets their recognition we see with the kardashian jenners i do not know if this is true or not if kendall jenner and bad bunny are hooking up i don't really care but it's really about like they're constantly grabbing onto what is quote unquote hot right now and trying it on but they get to take it off Correct. Cultures, you know, people that live in their culture and, and live in their skin, you're not able to take that off. Have you seen a trend or do you anticipate a trend of people trying to do that within the Muslim community as well?
1: I've just never seen that before until now. It's coming. Okay. I mean, okay. it's coming. <laughs> Last week, my best friend who does wear a hijab Sent me an email that said, Did you know there's this thing called World Hijab Day? And it rung a bell and she was excited about it because she was like, This is nice, you know, the people are have a day to celebrate women who wear the hijab. The woman who created it wanted to encourage other women to wear it for a day. And that's where it became tricky and problematic. So she had, like, you know, good intentions, like, why don't you try it? Why don't you see what it's like? Why don't you put a hijab on for the day and walk in the world and, like, walk in a Muslim woman who wears a hijab's shoes? Uh, But many people were saying, no, you know, you put it on, you can take it. Yes, you'll never know. You'll never understand what that's like and that it's encouraging cultural appropriation. I mean, it's an interesting experiment, and I think it's a really interesting debate because I understand the, the intention around it, the educational intent. But it's just so tricky with these things. Something like that easily can slide into the realm of cultural appropriation. You put
0: it on and you take it off. You sent me a couple of uh, links to some articles that you had written. And one, this one off Democracy Paradox called Worse Than Hate, The Inspiration for Hate Crimes Against Muslims. I hope I'm saying this, saying that correctly. I want to be very correct when I'm saying it. Yes. And you literally go kind of step by step of something that happened in 2015 in Chapel Hill, North Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You talk about what happened in Virginia. You talk about why law enforcement was is so reluctant to categorize Muslims as hate crimes. Obviously, that is very frustrating, and we know that happens quite often amongst other communities of color as well. Why do you think that that happens, and what do you think can be done so we, is there a way to course correct for those things? Yeah,
1: Yeah. so in my book, I have a chapter where I look at a few cases where Muslims were murdered, Muslim youth were murdered. And the crime made headline news for the first time because there have been many hate crimes that don't make headline news. But I look at two cases that actually did make headline news and they were not labeled as hate crimes. So law enforcement said, this is a crime. These three youth in North Carolina, it was a dispute with the neighbor. It was about a parking spot. And there was a case of a 17-year-old Nabra Hassanen, in Virginia. It was road rage. And people in the community said, wait a minute. Islamophobia is on the rise and these are Islamophobic incidents. Why won't you designate them as such? Well, the people didn't say something anti-Muslim while they were killing the person. You have to actually say something or you have to have evidence on your Facebook post. So you have to have like it has to be explicit. So racism has to be explicit to be recognized. And then the community was organizing to try to get this designation. And so while I was researching it I was thinking, okay, so if you get the designation does that solve the problem? And what I found was that recognition matters. We need recognition. We don't want to be gaslit. We don't want to be told, well, that yeah that was violence but it, you know, it's not hate crime. But that even getting the recognition doesn't actually reduce Islamophobia. It doesn't actually prevent future hate crimes. So I was thinking, well what would? Cuz this matters for recognition but it doesn't matter to solve the problem of anti-Muslim violence. And ultimately, it is amazing that there are new TV shows today that are featuring Muslims, and there's a lot of um, examples of advancement, and including Muslims in diversity. But at the end of the day, if we continue to have policies like Muslim ban, if we continue, for example, you know, 3,000 people were killed on 9-11, Since then, 150,000 Iraqi civilians have been killed. 30,000 Afghan civilians have been killed. And that's okay with people. So if we continue to have this national security machine that can drop drone, secret drone strikes in Yemen and kill people, that can incarcerate Muslim men in Guantanamo Bay prison without charging them and just keeping them for years and years, when you have policies that are... Severe like that, and that are justified based on the war on terror and national security, it's really hard to reduce hate crimes. And uh, part of what I was trying to do in thinking about this issue is that oftentimes when we talk about racism, it's about the individual. This person killed this person, and we're going to put this person in jail. Why did that person do that? They're getting messages from somewhere, and a lot of the messages are coming from the government and from our policies. And yes, and also the news media and also Hollywood, but that ultimately we can't solve the problem of hate crimes or anti-Muslim racism if we don't hold the government accountable.
0: No, absolutely. And those those I think obviously entertainment puts something out there, but when you see policymakers and politicians, people that are real people, right? Making these types of decisions and these types of policies, I think that is very heavy handed, then people are like, oh, well, they must be doing it for a reason. And if I think it has a very different effect than entertainment, I think permeates, right? But it has a very, very different effect than watching a movie and watching a TV show, because this is affecting real people in everyday lives. Your new book is called Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. And you talk about how Muslims have, Muslims have b- come to be included in diversity initiatives and what are effective and ineffective approaches to diversity. Can you share a couple of things if people don't know where to start? Because yeah. if somebody doesn't have a Muslim friend or is not really sure about what it is to be Muslim and they, so they're just very confused and all they get is what comes from yes. news and what policy is happening. Please share like, from your book in the perspective of how people can start where they should look to get true information. Yes. So
1: regarding the book, it's looking at how Muslims have come to be included in diversity politics, because for a long time, I didn't know how to talk about this stuff. And it wasn't part of our conversations. And it took 10 years after 9-11 for us to start using the term Islamophobia. It wasn't an immediate thing, but eventually it's become part of our lexicon through hate crimes that have been covered, through policies like the Muslim ban. People have become aware that there is this form of discrimination and they're taking a stance against it. Donald Trump was definitely a turning point and his Muslim ban in terms of there were many policies before, like war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, and there was opposition. But it wasn't opposition from corporations and from universities and from, you know, the media. It was, you know, grassroots organizers and individuals protesting. But I think with George Floyd and Donald Trump, that we had a very unique moment of outrage and people feeling galvanized. And so during that moment, we have started to see... As I mentioned, more Muslims on television in contexts that have nothing to do with terrorism. So we have Hulu's Rami, uh, which is about a Muslim millennial trying to come to terms with his faith in the secular world. We have Mo on Netflix, which is about a Palestinian family. They're undocumented in Texas. We have Ms. Marvel, which is about a Pakistani Muslim superhero. We have on um, HBO Max, sort of. It's a Canadian show that was brought here about a, a Pakistani Muslim transgender person and their lives we also have we are lady parts out of England that is streaming on peacock now it's about five Muslim women in a punk rock band so we have we finally have some stories I don't know if this is going to continue one of the arguments in my book and concerns is that we tend to do diversity when there's a crisis and so Muslim ban oh my gosh suddenly Hollywood is creating storylines and having Muslim writers and Muslim leads in TV shows. This is amazing. Muslim ban passes. I don't know if it's going to continue. It might, it might not. So um, I'm concerned about how we respond when there's this explicit crisis and that when the crisis isn't in our face, we might not be paying attention anymore. But to your other question about people who want information, I mean, sure. I I would say watch these TV shows. It's a good place to start. You might find a Muslim friend, an imaginary Muslim friend on one of these TV shows. And okay, so apparently there are almost two billion Muslims in the world, which means one out of four people are Muslim. And what does that mean? It's such a diverse community, so it's impossible to capture. So some people are really religious. Some people aren't religious. Some people are from Indonesia. Some people are from Nigeria. Some people are, you know, black Muslims have been in the U.S. for centuries Uh, it's just such a diverse group of people there are different you know facts different ways of practicing different levels of religiosity you know there's just so much diversity in the community but there's like an image of like who a muslim is
0: and that's what i was about to say i feel like there's just this kind of tunnel vision of what people think Mm -hmm. is muslim and then but then you see somebody like Hassan Minhaj, right? Yes. Who is very who is freaking hilarious. I got to see him in person here in San Diego. I love, love him. I love him. Yeah, me so too. So smart, so intelligent, so witty, so funny and very outspoken about him being Muslim. Yes. And talking about different things and I always say it's sometimes we have to meet people where we where they are. Yes. And unfortunately I feel like when it comes to the Muslim and Arab community people like if on a scale of 1 to 100 most people are probably like 15 to 20 like yeah they're very low on that scale because it's never really truly been at the forefront of a conversation that's not negative right yes
1: you're always i I do feel that way like you you know when i'm doing education it's always starting at zero but you have to start at the very beginning uh, explaining things because that image is so powerful so the muslim is arab or south asian fanatical so religious that they cannot accommodate other people's beliefs they're violent they oppress women they hate america they're anti-semitic so those are the the main stereotypes we have and it's so powerful and so then it's just like uh they're just people some are fanatical some are not some are religious Just because you're religious doesn't mean you're a fanatic
0: some I are, mean, you know. can say that with Christianity, right? Exactly. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of just touch on one of the things that we're not going to talk about, but okay. I want you to talk about why you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> because we talked about this prior to me hitting record. Yeah. And one of the things that you said you don't want to talk about is you say non-Muslims always want you to talk about oppressed Muslim women. And yes. you said, let's not do that. Yes. And I understand why. But can you explain like, Why you were very specific in not wanting to talk about that?
1: Yes. So you know, earlier when I was talking about collective responsibility, and there are certain things that people expect you to talk about. There's like a list of things that, if I say I'm Muslim, that people want to talk about. They want me to talk about Saudi Arabia. I'm not from Saudi Arabia. I've never been to Saudi. They want me to talk about Iran. I'm not from Iran. I don't know. You know, I study the U.S. I don't study the Middle East. They always want, and they want me to talk about terrorism and what happened on 9-11 and, and account for it and explain terrorism, explain why Islam is this fanatical religion. And then it's always the women. Why do they oppress their women? And again, there isn't one Muslim. There are many experiences in Islam. Some women have a bad experience. Some do. But yeah, if there are 2 billion Muslims and 1 billion of them might be women, they're not all having a bad time. It looks, you know, Islam looks different around the world. And so, but that representation has been so powerful and everyone has to speak to it, even if it's not your experience.
0: Yes. No, I appreciate you sharing that Mm -hmm. because we did talk about like why you wouldn't talk about that. And so that's enough for me, but I do want to counter that by saying like, there's a lot of men in the U.S. who want to oppress women and what our rights are so like if you want to start somewhere, start at home, right? You got to get your shit together at home before you can look out anywhere else. So that's what I would say. Yeah,
1: I think, I mean, when I was in college as a women's studies major, I haven't looked at the statistics since, but I remember it was like one in four women are victims of violence or rape in the US. And I'm sure it hasn't gone down and you're a survivor. There you go.
0: Yeah.
1: One in two on this conversation.
0: One in two in this conversation, yeah. Um, first of all, where can people get your book?
1: So you can get my book at amazon.com with, you know, one click, very easy. NYU Press is the publisher. It's also sold on their website, Barnes and Noble, other, wherever you buy your books.
0: Where is the next thing? What do you think is going to happen for your career and where you're taking, like what you're seeing, taking in all of the things? Yeah. What do you see next for yourself and where you want to continue educating people? Yes.
1: So I tend to, in terms of my research, I tend to be very contemporary. I like to understand the here and now. And so my first book was about the 10 years after 9-11 and the second book is the 10 years after. But right now I have no idea what's coming next. I'm just observing and seeing what happens in terms of how Muslims are talked about, if they're incorporated, if they're demonized, what's happening there. So we shall see, but I, you know, take teaching very seriously. I give a lot of lectures. I am an educator. And so I want to, I think education is so important. And if if people are open to learning, that all different communities, this just happens to be the one that I'm focused on. And uh, so I will continue teaching in the classroom. I will continue giving lectures um, around the country and hoping to at least change someone's perception on who Muslims are in the world.
0: Well, speaking about changing perceptions, have you had some very contentious interactions in your classroom and have you felt like there have been minds truly changed from very negative to a positive or just, or have you experienced students who just aren't changing at all?
1: Yeah, I've had all of the above, you know, I've been teaching since for a long time, 2005 officially, but even as a grad student, I was teaching from the late 1990s. And in the classroom, there's no guarantee that someone's going to connect with what you say. And that's one of the hardest things about teaching. You don't know what's going on in someone's head. You don't know if they're checked out. You don't know if they're listening. You don't know if they're challenging themselves. And I've had students who have learned absolutely nothing and sit there with their arms crossed. And I have other students who have completely changed their worldview and one example comes to mind, and I don't take credit for this. Like This happened because of other students in the classroom, but I was teaching a class on 9 11, and I had uh, two white men who were in ROTC and they were training to be in the military. And they said that their first job was actually going to be in Las Vegas, being in charge of drone strikes in the Middle East. And they were very sure that everything the US government did was for national security, was for democracy, was for freedom. And they really Believed that, and it was it was difficult because they they thought that the criticisms in the reading, the criticism in the class, were unfair. There was a, a Muslim woman in the class. We were talking about the Patriot Act, and these two men said, "Well, the Patriot Act is good for everyone. It's it's keeping us safe. It's it's good." And she said, "It might be keeping you safe, but it's not keeping me safe. I'm scared to even Google terrorism to write my paper for this class. I'm worried that you know they can come after me. They're going to be search- looking at my web searches." So she was sharing for her, from her own experience, her fears as a Muslim woman, just doing something that ordinary people do, web searches, create a, a paper. And something happened at that moment where they understood that their perspective and experience in the world is not neutral and objective, that their experience comes from their experience and that other people do not have the same experience as them. And that moment was very profound. And I think in education, it taught me a lot. Just that's that's all it takes, understanding that someone else's experience is not the same as yours.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One last thing before, and then I do have a question to ask you. <laughs> I mean, like a real big, I guess a real big question. How did you get involved in being a consultant for various Hollywood studios in regards to the representation of Muslims?
1: Before I moved to LA... I did get a call to be part of a community advisory council for Aladdin, the 2019 Aladdin. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm excited to hear this. (laughs) Yes. So we signed non-disclosure agreements. So I can't talk about the meetings themselves, but there was, they brought in like 15 Muslims from different organizations and backgrounds to offer feedback I can't say whether the feedback was actually taken,
0: but that's
1: where it began. Oh. And then, since being in L.A., I've had
0: other opportunities. Wait, but I can't ask you, were you happy
1: with what came out? I don't feel like my input made a difference at all. But there were other okay. uh, there were two Muslim organizations that were involved and they did make a difference. But they're not allowed to talk about how they made okay. a difference. But I did hear what they did. OK, they, they did make a difference. But the group they brought okay. in, no, we didn't. I don't. I don't think anything actually <laughs> happened because we were there. But then, since being here in LA the last four years, there have been quite a few opportunities, and I attribute it to that Muslim ban moment, where people in Hollywood started caring about how Muslims are portrayed. They didn't want to get it wrong. They didn't want to embarrass themselves. They didn't want people to cancel their subscriptions to their streaming services. So there have been more requests. Some of them are education based, which I love. Like I I will go, I love going in and educating since that's what I do. This is how Muslims have been portrayed, this is how Arabs have been portrayed. Try not to do this or that, you know. Some historical perspective, because a lot of people are not aware of the the history of representations. Sometimes it's damage control, which I don't like doing as much. Which is, we are done with this show. We're about to release it. Are people going to freak out and cancel their subscriptions? And then it's about, well, if they're mad, how about if you invest in the show? How about if you apologize, take accountability? Uh, there's more than that, more of that than I would like. And uh, others are very one on one. It's like just Islam 101 stuff. You could Google, but all right, I can be your Google.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Here is my question. Big question. Okay. Bring it. I am taking the podcast on tour. The first stop is in LA in April. I believe it's, will probably be April 15th because after tax day, everybody needs some levity. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And the theme of it is representation in Hollywood. Yeah. And I was wondering if you would come and speak. I want to have a panel. It's going to be a panel. And I was wondering if you would be one of the panelists to talk about representation in Hollywood.
1: I would love that.
0: (laughs) You got to send me the the day and we'll try to figure it out.
1: But I would love to be on a panel with you. I would love that.
0: Yes. Oh, that makes me so, so happy. Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy because I think it's so important to talk about representation across the board and, and how it's being handled and what can we do within our communities to support one another and to make sure that representation, you know, that it's not just all Latino characters are gangbangers and maids and gardeners and, you know, not all people from the Muslim community are terrorists and want to come after you or whatever. And people from the black community aren't like, you know, just going to be gangbangers as well. Like, I feel like the black community and, and the Latino community are represented very similarly, but also very differently. So that makes me so happy. That makes me so excited. So
1: yeah, thank you. I would love that.
0: I will send you all the info, but in the meantime, um, if people want to learn more about you, they can go to EvelynAsultani.com. Your Twitter is also Asultani, as well as your Instagram and your LinkedIn. And I will make sure to provide all of that in the show notes. Evelyn, I always give everybody an opportunity to say anything that they feel like they didn't get a chance to say um, at the end. So the floor is yours. If there's anything additional you would like to add.
1: I don't think I have anything else to add. I'm very happy. So happy to talk to you. I loved our conversation and I'm glad we'll get to talk more.
0: Yes, me too. I'm so excited. I'm so happy we did this. We had to postpone it because I had, had something, a work thing. I forgot. Oh yeah, I had, oh yeah, I had a work thing. And I was like, why did I have to postpone it? But I'm so happy now that we got to talk and I can't wait. So mi gente, please make sure to follow Evelyn buy her book, get some knowledge. You know, I know that people that listen are all about representation and all about learning more. So this is definitely the right crowd who's curious and wants to learn. So until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Me podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheeseman on our website, thewineandcheesemanpodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and on Instagram and at The Wine and Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheeseman, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos!